you have something to say, I'd like to hear it. I want a divorce. Are you asking me for a divorce? Divorce? I will divorce you so fast, it'll make your head spin. I want a divorce. 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 This is Dallas Divorce Talk with Don Butner and Carla Calabrese. Don and Carla guide you deep inside the world of divorce through all the ins and outs, ups and downs, and any unexpected turns. Now, your hosts to have and to hear, Don Budner and Carla Calabrese. And good morning. This is Dawn Budner. I'm here with my co-host Carla Calabrese on Dallas Divorce Talk. Don't forget to look us up on iTunes and Facebook and our law firm page, calabresebudner.com. And today we are going to talk about how you can cover your assets in <laughs> divorce. And to help us with this very intriguing inquiry we have mr brian rice hello brian hello don how are you today i'm wonderful carla how are you i'm good how are you did you enjoy driving up and down the freeway with me this morning when we were lost directionally challenged partner carla forgot to tell me exactly where to turn so it took us um about 20 minutes longer yeah Mm -hmm. but anyway we can't be good at everything can we brian no (laughs) so brian is quite expert, however, in financial matters and in how those matters come up in divorce actions. True, Brian? That's that's true. I've worked on probably about 1,200 litigated divorces over the last decade and a half, so I've, I've seen a few things. Wow. <laughs> how many times have you been divorced? I've just been divorced once. Oh, Brian. I'm she sorry. thought you were going to say not none. No. no, I did think you were going to say none, but I think if you know you're really going to be an expert, that you need to get those numbers up. It does. <laughs> well, going through the process yourself does give you some empathy for the people, your clients, and yes. everyone who's going through it. Absolutely. Yeah. So let me tell you guys really quick how awesome Brian is. He has a master's of science in tax. Wow. <laughs> And he's still really fun to be around and that he's like the only guy that can say that. (laughs) He is licensed as a CPA, a certified financial planner, an accredited senior appraiser, and also accredited to do business valuations. And so Brian actually does a lot of work with law firms, different law firms, and we've worked with Brian and our firm has been on the other side of cases that Brian has worked on. Um, And... He is pretty awesome. So we decided it might be great to get Brian's perspective uh, so that maybe some of you folks who might be involved in these types of matters can get some guidance and then hopefully some guidance for those of you who are not involved in those matters. Um, You know, maybe you can do some smart things to avoid some of the pitfalls that Brian has seen. Um, So we thought first first thing we're going to do is take some of Brian's um, amassed uh, worst things to do in divorce. It's, it's his list. Here it is. And Brian, do you have your list handy? Yes. <laughs> so you want to tell us one of your, your biggest mistakes that you've seen folks make? I think one of the biggest mistakes, uh, I'll start with what was number five on my list, um, start spending legal and expert fees on, on matters in your divorce before you really have go- your goals set 
for the outcome of your divorce. Because as I tell people, if you're just sitting in a chair looking forward, that doesn't take a whole lot of effort. Looking backwards takes a lot of effort. You have to turn your whole body around and, and peer back the other way and hold that position. So one of the things that many people do is they they just try to figure out all of the injustices that were done to them. I mean, say, we'll just keep it to financial injustices. And they, they don't think about what it's going to take for them to be able to afford, fund, and enjoy what their new life is going to be, except... There are some people who count on finding a super rich new spouse, but that's right. not really uh, that feasible for most of us. So <laughs> we have to get an understanding. One of the key things is knowledge, getting understanding <clears throat> of what your finances are um, and figuring out the, the most optimal way to divide those assets and in a way that's going to be most beneficial uh, to you <clears throat> and be feasible. And one of, of course, once you start spending attorneys and expert fees, all of those fees are just that much less money that you're going to have after the divorce. So, so I like, I like what you said there because I, that rings really true in terms of, you know, folks coming to the table, thinking about what has gone on in the past and, you know, that their spouse has wasted money on X or Y and that sort of thing and really wanting to go, I'm sure that he's hiding money. I'm sure that there are accounts somewhere that I don't know about and that sort of thing. So let me ask you, in cases you've worked on, do how often do you think that, you know, people are actually hiding assets? I think in the minority of cases, I, as I tell people, if you've been married to someone who has been very secretive about finances and who has been a liar <laughs> and who has not been forthcoming about their personal life or their financial life. Uh, there are people who, who have for many years in your marriage hidden financial assets and done a very good job of, uncover of covering it up. Um, however, most people, um, they try to become amateur, hide-the-ball characters uh, towards when the divorce uh, is kind of looming. And some people try to do that, but they do a very bad job of it because they're okay, just Okay, so let me skilled. ask you a question here. So for, you know, the, and we're just going to do, we're going to pretend like uh, we've got a very wealthy man in this situation and a Cinderella, like we sometimes like to say. And so if you've got a pretty sophisticated, um, wealthy man in this case, doesn't he have to lie to the IRS in order to hide money successfully in these cases? Not necessarily, because a great, a great example would be, say that you own an interest or this couple own as community property an interest in a partnership. And a partnership might make distributions of profits and a partnership distribution in and of itself is not a taxable transaction. So say someone got a several hundred thousand dollar distribution from a partnership and there's no reporting of that on a tax return. But the actual income that, has, that comes through on the partnership tax reporting documents, that would be transparent and on the tax return. But what people do with 
the income they report on a return is really the key as opposed to what they did or did not report on a return. Because, you know, that brings up a good point. Many people are convinced that their spouse has been cheating on their taxes or doing all these things. And <clears throat> bringing all that up sometimes uh, could could actually bite you in the end because if you sign that joint tax return, you may be liable for all of that tax cheating as well, even right. though it was going on behind your back. So, and, and then if taxes are owed and that sort of thing, then the money is gone. Right. Assumedly. Uh, a lot, you know, in, in my world, couples who cooperate um, in building an estate and, and kind of mix their finances and, and have shared financial goals, those are not the ones we're seeing getting divorced a lot of the times. We're seeing people who kind of were both on parallel tracks and maybe <clears throat> were not sharing their income, uh, did not want to create a community estate, perhaps partition their income, and were, were secretive with, with each other and maybe even tried to outspend each other just for spite. So that's unfortunately, we, we can see, after, or at least I've seen after this many divorce cases and this long doing it, profiles of, mm-hmm. of who gets divorced and why. And huh, so y- that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that in a million years. I wouldn't have thought that you would see that kind of pattern, so to speak. Oh, and but my, and right, in my view, may be anecdotal. It may yeah. just be based on a small percentage of what actually is going on mm-hmm. out there, but I've come to notice that a common thread in the divorce cases I worked on is or people who didn't have shared financial goals because I think a community estate and shared wealth and savings is one of the, the pieces of glue that will hold a marriage together. Okay, that's such a huh. great point. And doesn't that go back to our theme in so many of these talks that we've had about communication. Yeah. So if the couple is communicating about financial goals and they're on a team, you know, so to speak, with respect to their finances, doesn't that speak so much to, you know, how they're probably dealing in other areas? I think so. <clears throat> I mean, That's a great that point. I'm, I'm not any kind of psychologist <laughs> but I, or counselor, but I have seen uh, many people, uh, you know, complain bitterly about what their spouse did and how it was hidden from them. And then they were actually doing the very same thing. <laughs> so talk about, you referenced earlier, the not-so-skillful money-hiding spouse. Well, I think most people are fundamentally honest, even though it's kind of odd for me to even say that after what I've seen. But overall, um, most people are accountable for their incomes and they don't go to great efforts to hide or conceal when things are okay. But then when things are going south in the marriage, they start uh, covering, circling the wagons and they, they start getting really on, in the me spot. And so they want to, they want to accumulate and save as much for themselves uh, post-divorce as they can. So we may see activity, like for example, I've seen a person overpay their credit card. So they had maybe a $50,000 credit balance on their credit card. The MasterCard people are going, what? We love this guy. (laughs) This never Um, happens. So we, uh, and so that would be an example of the way to the amateur attempt to hide money. So, oh, no one's going to see this credit card (laughs) uh, balance that's a $50,000 credit that then I will have available to myself to spend against after I'm divorced. 
um, another very humorous <laughs> attempt that, that kind of often works is say your Cinderella spouse goes grocery shopping um, and purchases a 50 or $100 gift card um, in with every time they go to the grocery store. And at the end of the divorce, uh, they might have $5,000 <laughs> worth of uh, unused gift cards. And mm -hmm. so the extent to which that goes on sometimes is directly proportional to the level of non-cooperation that previously was occurring during the marriage. But Or, or you see one, one thing, maybe people <clears throat> may go open a bunch of new bank accounts and take money out of one bank account and disperse it amongst several new accounts and then just simply move that money around, take some out. And, and before long, um, it would, it's a very frustrating thing to follow all that money and, and it can be done. In, in the words of a, a, a judge in Fort Worth who's been on the bench many years, he said, money is easy to follow. <clears throat> and to a large degree, I would agree with that. Hmm. So, so you do see the amateur hour, and it, and it just causes <clears throat> a lot of extra legal fees. It causes the, a lot of extra fees for someone like me. And then what it does <clears throat> is once that, that activity is noted, it reduces the credibility of that person right. in the eyes of the court, <clears throat> in the eyes of their, their spouse's lawyer, in the eyes of someone like me. So then, then we have to start questioning everything, everything that they yeah. did. Right, so we wonder, sense. is this a pattern of behavior that's been going on for a long time? We don't know. So right. what would you suggest to someone who is you know, freshly in a divorce case in terms of setting goals and outcomes and I think you put on your list here making an actual proactive decision about what issues to pursue and that sort of thing. Well, that's a that's an excellent question and and I think for both sides of the divorce the first thing you have to understand is sometimes attorneys will make promises <clears throat> and they will say for example the range of outcomes in a divorce is as large as say a football field. And the, the fact is the range of outcomes in a divorce might not be much larger than a legal pad because <laughs> a lot of people have been divorced before and we see the same issues over and over. And <clears throat> we typically don't see times when the courts are going to award the entirety of an estate to one person or another. Right. Um, the court so even if there's an affair, if there's, um, you know, cruelty, abusive behavior, you know, what in what have you seen the range to be? Uh, I think uh, the when when you go to court, I think the the outside is. I mean, if you have an estate of any size, you know, the outcome is is sixty forty at most, which you know is is what we call a substantially disproportionate division. But okay, and so to explain for our viewers, then. Because Texas is community property state, right. that means the spouses will share 50-50 is the starting point for community property assets unless there's a reason for the court to depart from that for, a, as you said, disproportionate division. And reasons for that might be, um, well, there are a whole laundry list of them, but it could include bad behavior. It could include difference in earning capacity and that sort of thing, right? Right. I mean, the, the judges on the bench are humans as well. And they get presented with different facts every day. 
and different scenarios. And without providing a legal opinion here, I mean, my understanding is the courts have the right to decide to divide an estate in, in what's called a just and right manner. Right. And unless they can be shown to have abused their discretion in the division of the estate, their ruling will stand. Right. And so <clears throat> you, I, I do not see... Um, you know, substantial penalties imposed upon people for bad behavior because, I mean, and I'm, I'm not going to sit there and speculate as to why, but my, but then maybe I will. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, th- I think it's very hard for a person like a judge to put a price tag on bad behavior. I mean, so say one person stepped out of line one time, did something bad. So what is that going to cost you? You're only human. People are only human. If it's a pattern of repetitive, abusive behavior, then maybe there is a higher price tag on that. But then the counter argument to that is if you've been in a bad marriage for a long time and letting somebody do these things to you, the court might ask, why did you stay? Why did you let yourself be victimized for many years? Why didn't you just leave if it was so bad? The court sometimes, I don't know, but generally cannot go back and and right the wrongs that have been visited upon you for many, many years. They're more concerned with what's here now to divide. That is so, what you just said is so profoundly true. And I, I think that people in the psychology world and those who deal with victims of abuse and that sort of thing would probably want to rip all of our hair out right now. Yes, for sure. (laughs) But, you know, because if a judge is really saying, why did you not leave to a victim of abuse, you know, that... They they don't really understand the issue. They they don't understand the issue. But I I think, nevertheless, Brian, what you said is 100% comports with what I have seen, and that is that the courts might think that sounds pretty bad, but in general, the judges, when you come before them, they're looking at what is in front of me right now, what needs to be decided right now, and especially if you've got kids, what do we need to do for the future? They're really not about, they're not like a jury in general kind of trying to compensate you for past wrongs. That's not their mindset at all. Right, and to be totally clear, I'm not talking about any kind of physical or physical abuse, okay? Oh, you're talking that, more about like affairs. I'm, I'm talking about financial abuse. Oh, my, oh financial I'm abuse. I'm talking about, well, potentially... What is financial abuse? Well, um, I, that, that's a great question. Overspending? I, I would say one person... I mean, an understanding that in, in the world of a community estate, spouses supposedly, or I Under guess legally, law. have a fiduciary duty to one another to Correct. disclose the monies that are being earned and to spend it in the best interests of the community in a, in a non-wasteful manner. Okay. Right. And when we see somebody who is not disclosing their income, who is keeping it all for themselves, who is providing pro- no access or information, no access or information. And maybe, um, either, I mean, I mean, and it can go both ways. Maybe a spouse is so amazingly miserly and cheap that basic needs aren't getting met. That could be a form of financial abuse. Have uh, you talked to my husband? <laughs> oh, no, uh, but I, I should. Beg to <laughs> An- another, but another form I'll of. I'll be fin- quoting you on that. Right. Another form of financial abuse may simply be 
Well, I earn this income, so I get to go spend it on whomever I want and go spend it on third parties, um, go gambling, um, use it for all kind of whatever nefarious purpose, or perhaps go make wildly speculative and uh, non, uh, very poorly thought out investments that that may not have any chance of ever bearing fruit. So, <clears throat> and then you know I've I've seen many times. I mean, I mean, or a, a, a great way to sum it up would be in a mediation I was in. Uh, we were there till seven o'clock at night, and I remember the lady sitting there with her arms, you know, close, you know, tightly around her. Um, her torso, you know, very angry. Yeah, closed off, uptight. And and her quote was, after 25 years, that's all there is to divide. (laughs) Now, whether or not it was that person's fault, I mean, in that particular case, well, that person decided to quit her job and do other things. Okay, well, that's all there was. But in some cases... Um, you have somebody who's trusting their spouse, who's making the money. That's the spouse that we're talking about maybe never had any kind of good potential, earning potential, no career. Mm-hmm. It was understood they were going to raise children. And now after all that time, they know that their spouse was earning several hundred thousand a year and there's nothing left. And why is that? Well, because maybe that person was a huge spender, made really poor investments in the stock market, um, you know, didn't pay taxes and then, you know, had to pay big IRS penalties and interest or Right, whatever. or maybe didn't. I mean, we have one case in our office right now where, you know, this couple, the, the wife was a stay-at-home, and the the husband, you know, one year had income of like $20 million. And they now, after 23 or something years of marriage, have got no retirement accounts at all zero retirement accounts basically what they have is the real property they own because they've spent everything else and the wife has never had any access she was given sort of an allowance for all those years and you know I think we're coming to a place where we have to call this out and it's sensitive because you know, we don't want to criticize a woman who decides to stay home with her children. That's a, you know, really important thing to do, and that should be applauded. Uh, but by the same token, it is not necessarily a very wise move if you make that decision and you don't think any further beyond it about your own future because, my gosh, I mean, having three kids now – and two of them are now, you know, 18 plus, it goes by so quickly. And I did that. I mean, I stayed home for a while, but I just think, gosh, I didn't, back then when I was deciding, that seemed like 100 years from then and that I would, you know, my life would be over by that time, so it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. But it goes by so quickly, you really have to think about what what your choices are going to do in terms of your ability to, you know, stand back up if, if you know, one in two marriages fails. Exactly. I mean, and I've uh, alluded to this many times, um, if I could, if I had the opportunity to address a, an assemblage of, say, young working women who, who had great careers. I mean, we see all these young ladies doing very well in college hmm. and working really hard and getting great grades and getting out. 
um, getting a really good job and making as much as their husband. And then, you know, maybe, maybe this is, this trend is going to change as, as the generation changes. But, um, you know, I'd like to say <clears throat> before you make that decision to sacrifice all the earning capacity and raise children for 20 years, uh, make sure that you and your husband are totally on board with that decision that you're going to make the necessary adjustments in your uh, financial life and probably ratchet back your goals for, um, you know, fancy houses, cars, vacations, and, you know, who knows, you know, how, how you're going to spend money on kids because all those things are going to play into how much liquidity is there on uh, the time you get divorced because a lot of, well, when it happens, a lot, a lot of times when you have, if you have two people who are in careers, then people are kind of on a parallel track. But when one person steps back and, and stays home, then you're really not as much on the same page anymore. So I, I don't know. So what do you think? I, I think we might've been chatting about this before we, we started rolling this morning, but you were talking about how, the couples that are able now, sorry if I'm deja vuing on the wrong thing. We already said this. This will be well, embarrassing. Which one? No, it's okay. What is okay, it? Okay, so I'm thinking when Brian, you were mentioning that, you know, it's not really typically the couples that make these sort of joint decisions, sit down with their goals together, that end up, you know, getting the divorce. Those aren't the ones we see. And so I'm thinking if you do have a couple that's, you know, young and embarking on raising kids and there's a decision to be made about a parent cutting back and staying home, you know, don't, what do you think the couple should be sitting down to, to talk about at that time with respect to being on the same page with goals and Carla and I financial goals. One idea we had had a while back is at the least, if you're a stay-at-home mom, there should be an account that is putting money to pay you for your time as though it were a nanny's time. I mean, at the very least, there should be some retirement and your name being earned for that. That That is exactly what I was going to say, is that uh, I'm, you know, I have uh, two successful children, one who will be a junior in high school and one who is a junior at Texas Tech or going to her senior year. And I will say that raising children is a very difficult task, and but it doesn't much harder pay. than being a lawyer. <laughs> Maybe so, yes. <laughs> and uh, the and so there's no stated compensation for that. Right. And so how do we get that person satisfied that in the event that the marriage uh, fails, there will be some liquidity for them? And and of course that it's incumbent upon that person as well. To, to ratchet back expectations. I mean, here's the dynamic of a divorce to some degree. You know, when the divorce is going on, we're, we're, and say one person moves out, we're taking the same income stream and we're doubling up the fixed costs. Okay, new house, um, mm-hmm. you know, new living quarters, new furniture, all of those things that, and then, of course, while the divorce is going on, perhaps the person or either if they're both working or only one's working, there's a, there's less focus on their job. I mean, mm-hmm. especially for closely held businesses, people that are business owners. And so well, not only does, you've got legal fees, expert fees, all that business. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and so we we basically enter this period of time while the divorce is going on where there's absolutely not a penny of wealth being created. It's all getting consumed with fees and um, we're doubling up expenses. And it's, and so 
those those types of issues should be looked looked at you know from hopefully we'll never be there but that and that ties back again to the goal setting i mean do you want to i mean would it be easier to just sit down and 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 put all the money in one account and write a check to each lawyer and be done because that's kind of what some people do it's 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 amazing <laughs> what do you mean explain that well i've seen people uh, many people devastate <clears throat> their estate by fighting over over things that they probably could have sat down over dinner and worked out. But instead, they they put themselves behind. I mean, many people get divorced, say, in their 50s. Okay, that's a part, that that's a time in your life when, when you should be done with the major consumption items from a financial perspective, and you should be in savings mode. But instead... Uh-oh, Carla! <laughs> but instead... We take all the liquidity, the, all the savings and the cash and the investments accounts, and, and we simply, and, and sometimes tragically, retirement accounts. And we take that money and disperse them to lawyers and experts and psychologists and all the people who are uh, involved in the divorce. And to me, that is just so amazingly tragic. Um, you know, and another corollary to that is one, one thing I've kind of humorously noted over the years is you know, we have this document in a divorce called the inventory and appraisement. Right. Okay. Usually the very first item on the inventory is the people's house. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then right after that, in the next section is the cash and the bank accounts and the, the brokerage accounts and those sorts of things. And then after that is the retirement accounts. And then the last section of the inventory is the personal property, all the stuff, okay? And so <clears throat> we, and so all of those things that people wanted that were so important during their marriage that they desperately had to have that, that are in the last section of the inventory, those get talked about for about five minutes right. in the whole divorce. Yeah, oh, it's a <laughs> but, good point. But the thing, the thing that, the thing that um, gets talked about the most is the cash. Now, there's a beautiful billboard. I drive around Dallas-Fort Worth a lot, and it, it's a local bank. And they and the bill and it was it struck me so <coughs> uh, it, it was really amazing. It said, "Start a beautiful relationship with your money." <laughs> okay. <coughs> now that does I know it sounds kind of weird. What? It, sa it says it. It's, Wait it, on that note. We are going to break. Okay. And it is it is a cliffhanger. You guys are actually say. wrapped. You're you're already at thir Stop thirty it. minutes in. <laughs> wow. Okay, you guys are gonna have to come back. I mean, <laughs> this is Dallas Divorce Talk cliffhanger ending <laughs> on how to cover your assets in divorce. So if you want to know this very important and profound uh, ending to the Brian Rice cliffhanger. Please come back. See us for our next show, part two. <laughs> <laughs>